What is up, everyone? Welcome back to TMT Time. My name is Evan Rothstein. I'm your host. Today, I am a little less worried about what I say, and there's a good reason for that, and that is because I am welcoming into the podcast Teresa House, who happens to be a free speech lawyer. Teresa, welcome into the podcast. Hi, everybody. Glad to be here. Thank you, Evan. So uh, because she's a free speech lawyer... I don't really care what I say, or maybe I should care more what I say, but Teresa, before we get into whether I should or not, why don't you introduce yourselves for our listeners? Yes, yes. And, and that is one of the issues we'll, we'll be discussing. Do people care about what they say in public, or is it truly a free-for-all? Um, but before we get to that, yes, my name's Teresa. I work at Arnold & Porter uh, with Evan. Um, and I represent a lot of people, tech, tech companies, entertainment companies, news companies, and basically my job is to help them express themselves in their intellectual property in ways that are consistent with the law, but also let them get their message out. So, uh, Teresa, is it true or not that you represent Borat or have and that this is going to be a great success of a podcast? <laughs> Yes, I hope so. Um, it, it was a, it's a long story from a, a while ago, but um, I, I was very privileged to get to represent um, Sasha Baron Cohen and some of the, the production for, for one of his earlier movies. And the, the funny thing about that is that it wasn't the first time that I'd come across um, Sasha Baron Cohen. He had spoken at my college and um, I was up on stage with him at the same time. And I was itching to tell him the story because I knew he, he wouldn't remember me from it. Um, and I talked to one of the lawyers on the case and I told them about the story because I wasn't, I wasn't too afraid to tell the lawyer. And the lawyer said, you got to tell him, he's going to love it. And um, I finally did. And not only did he like it, but he remembered the whole interaction. And so I felt very cool as a, as a young attorney. Um, and one of the things that I like the most about Sasha Baron Cohen and his films, though, is that he truly is a, he's a free speech advocate. So he's an entertainer, but his goal is to hold a mirror up to society and to kind of show people what they really are, what, even behind closed doors. And I just think that that's such an important part of being an artist and, and being a reporter. Um, and I think that it's, it's good for society. What I like about it is I get to say things like very nice on the podcast. So, Teresa, free speech lawyer, let's get into some sort of substance because, I mean, this is a hot topic. People want to know what you can say in public. And, you know, there are a lot of words like, you know, defamation. That's defamation. I'm going to sue so-and-so for defamation. Thrown around a lot. Obviously, our last president did a lot of that. And we'll probably get into that some here. I would expect but you know it's it's nice to be able to talk to someone who actually knows the contours of the doctrine and and what is and what is not permissible at least under the current structure of the law so let's get into a little bit here with this concept of actual malice uh, i hear a lot uh so why don't you tell our listeners what that means Right. So this actual malice is a very old standard that has been kind of a cornerstone of the First Amendment since 1964, which is about 
60,000 years ago in terms of how much we've developed as a culture and um, in terms of how we operate in engaging in free speech at an individual level and for media companies. Um, but it comes from a case called New York Times versus Sullivan, um, which was decided that same year. And basically what that case held was that in contrast to how we'd always done things as a nation when it came to defamation, um, that just because something was false, just because something harmed your reputation, that wasn't enough for the government to be able to say, that's defamation, you have to pay damages. Instead, they said that the speaker also had to have acted with a high degree of fault, actual malice. And what that meant there was that the speaker knew that it was false at the time he or she published it, or that they acted with reckless disregard for whether it was true or false, which generally means that, ah, yeah, you had some inkling, a subjective doubt that what you were saying might not be true, or you knew that there were sources out there that you hadn't checked but could verify whether you were saying what, what you were saying was true or false. And you decided, I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to put my head in the sand. And the reason why this is so important is because it effectively allowed good faith journalism to be the standard for, for whether you could say something in America that was critical of someone else. And it's very interesting because a lot of people have said and that it really made it impossible to sue for a large swath of potential libel defendants. So these are people who can say under oath, yeah, I believe this is true when I said it, and, and effectively immunized a lot of speech from, from legal enforcement of defamation laws. All right. So that this is, goes back to my I think I can say whatever I want because I don't really have any actual malice about anything I say here in the podcast so I should just spew out nonsense and then say well yeah I thought it could be true maybe um does do the libel laws and the defamation laws apply to my podcast well yeah they absolutely do and the the key, though, is that these heightened standards of fault only apply to certain types of defamation plaintiffs. So New York Times versus Sullivan started off by saying that if a public official is the subject of the story, that's someone who is the face of the government, who has the, the power of the government behind them, and has sort of adopted the risk of being subjected to public scrutiny. And all of those are very good reasons why someone who's a public official, which could include the president, or it could include your local police officer, is someone who should have to satisfy a higher standard. Later on, the rule in New York Times versus Sullivan was extended to other people of special prominence. So that would include public figures, people who are celebrities, who are household names, but also people who had been involved in a very public way in addressing matters of controversy, matters in the public interest, a debate, a predefined debate. Now, the people who don't fall into those categories, public officials or public figures or limited purpose public figures are 
private figures. That would be hopefully people like you and me, although now you've got this podcast and you're the, the face I don't know. of TNT I've, time. I, so I, I heard you say special <laughs> prominence and I was like, that's me. Yeah, that's right. Probably, yeah. No, I'm not, no, regular, I'm a regular person, yes. <laughs> not special and- prominence. So I fall in this last bucket, I suspect. Yeah. So that's, so that, so if you're a private figure, if you're someone out in the world, who's, who's just doing their job um, and, and you're not making comments to the press, you're not contributing to a debate, then, then the usual common law rules of defamation apply to speech about that type of person. So it can be as, as low as negligence. So as long as the person who's talking about you has done what a reasonable person would have done to, in order to check that what they are saying is accurate, then um, then they're allowed to say what they what they want to say about you. Okay, so although we here at TMT Time are very apolitical and we strive not to talk about politics, uh, I have to bring up our, our past immediate past president uh, because he was the subject of a lot of five years worth of statements and attacks on libel law and we heard the, the phrase fake news coined. How does that all play into this? Well, President Trump um, began talking back in February 2016. Um, this was before he was president. He was then a candidate. And he went to a rally in Fort Worth, Texas, and he was sort of giving his usual stump speech about criticizing the failing New York Times, the Washington Post saying they were losing money, that they're dishonest. But then he sort of flipped the debate and he started to say that when he's president, they're going to have problems. Uh, One of the things that that I want to do if I win is to really open up the libel laws. And everyone's ears in the room sort of who cared about free speech, they perked up and were like, well, what does he really mean about that? Um, And we started looking back to, well, what's Trump's experience with libel? And he had, in fact, brought a lawsuit for libel um, based on a book that was about him. This was filed in New Jersey. Um, And the premise of the book was that he wasn't really a billionaire. He was a millionaire. And Trump thought that that was defamatory of him because being a billionaire was so important to his brand. And he ultimately uh, honestly, lost. How moronic the... is that? Sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but that's just ridiculous. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I mean, I, I have to, if somebody called me a millionaire instead of a billionaire, I, I can't say that I would think that it meant it was defamatory. <laughs> you know what I would say? Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's hope it's true. Yeah. Um, really? But, That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but he he ultimately, tr- President Trump, not President Trump at the time, businessman Trump at the time, um, lost that suit, not because of the idea that, that being a millionaire instead of a, a billionaire wasn't defamatory, which is what you might expect, um, but instead because the author was found not to have published it with actual malice. Um and so this sort of reignited a new debate about whether this actual malice standard is something that is defensible or not, or something that is, is good for our society and, and good for the law. Well, then I have to ask, I mean, I, he pushed this issue throughout his presidency. Is this standard good for society? Well, I mean, my, <laughs> this, the New York Times opinion was, was authored by Justice Brennan. And 
my son's middle name is Brennan, so and which is not a coincidence. So I, Ooh, I clearly personal fact, personal, <laughs> your son's middle name is Brennan. That's pretty awesome. Wow. It's a good name. It's a good name. And I, I think it's a good standard. I think it's really important because the reason why New York Times v. Sullivan carved out this new rule is because if you only protect speech that is proved to be true, then it chills all sorts of other speech. Um, it, it, it basically, where the First Amendment requires a scalpel without the use of the actual malice standard, defamation law provides a, a sledgehammer. And so if, if you are a journalist operating in a world of uncertainty and you're trying to report on an issue of critical public importance, and you think you have all of your facts in a row to the best of your ability, you've checked every single source that will speak to you about it, whether on the record or off the record, and you go to your editor and you say, we need to go forward with this. And the editor says, well, there's, there's the possibility that it's false. And if, if, and it's such a big story that it will cause damages, you know, that's, that's a really hard decision for people to make. And the, the Supreme Court in New York Times versus Sullivan, really, that was the decision that was presented to them. I mean, the history of that case is that Sullivan was a commissioner in Montgomery, Alabama, who was responsible for overseeing the local police department. And the New York Times uh, had run a paid advertisement by a committee that was formed to uh, raise money to, to defend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from, from attacks. And they had published a paid editorial in the New York Times, basically listing out um, a number of incidents involving the civil rights movement in Alabama and saying that the police had uh, put a padlock on a door uh, to the, the local college's dining hall um, in order to kind of starve out student protesters, things like that. And Sullivan said that, that harmed his reputation as someone who was responsible for the police. And the problem is the New York Times effectively got it wrong. Like there were, they, there was no padlock. People were not starved out. There were a number of other things in, in the advertisement that also proved to just be false. And the Times hadn't checked it because it was an advertisement. It wasn't one of their stories. Uh, they had just relied on having known the person who placed the advertisement to be a reliable person. And they did no independent fact checking. And if they had, they would have found that it was false because the New York Times news section had published articles with the true facts about these same stories. Um, and so New York Times versus Sullivan was really a case about kind of bad journalism, bad facts. Um, and yet it resulted in this kind of sea change in how we do journalism in America today. And one of the reasons for that was that the Sullivan lawsuit was, was not the only one. So it was actually part of a campaign um, by, by Southern politicians to try to silence speech about the civil rights movement. Um, historians have calculated there were up to $300 million worth of, um, of, of lawsuits currently pending against the New York Times and others who were reporting on the civil rights movement in the South. Um, and it was basically a, a, a campaign designed to stop and silence that type of reporting. And um, I just actually just was reading a, a, an old book about this. And the, the author said that, um, that 
the New York Times had actually pulled out all of its reporters from Alabama for a year leading up to this lawsuit so that they could try to say that there was no personal jurisdiction over them in Alabama. So wow. no reporters in Alabama during the civil rights Genius. movement for a year. <laughs> right? Well, all right. <laughs> and, well, you, you mentioned a book and because we give book recommendations here on TMT time, what is the name of the book and do you recommend book, it? Yes, it's, it's really good. It's called Make No Law. It's an old book by um, Anthony Lewis. He was a, a former New York Times reporter um, who used to report for the New York Times. And it's, it was written in 1991, um, and actually Justice Elena Kagan reviewed it sort of famously in a law review article that was published two years later in 1993, a libel story, Sullivan, then and now. Um, and what's interesting about this is that, you know, a lot of President Trump's criticism of libel laws has, has in some people's minds, led to certain members of the current Supreme Court calling out the New York Times versus Sullivan standard in, in dissents to denials of writs of certiorari. So Justice Thomas has famously come out and said that he thinks it should be revisited and that it was you know, judge-made law inconsistent with the originalist interpretation of the First Amendment. Justice Gorsuch has said the same thing. Um, and Justice Gorsuch, in one of his defenses, when he was, was criticizing the actual malice standard, actually cited this article by Justice Kagan um, which was written when she was an assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago, and is is fairly critical of the New York Times Sullivan standard, um, and basically says that yes, it made sense in the context of um, you know reporting and speech about public officials, but it's been expanded so far to other people that it's uh, that the exception is sort of swallowed up the rule of of defamation law, and so. It's interesting to see because as a justice, Justice Kagan has been very free speech friendly, um, but this old law review article um, sort of brings up a question about you know what her views might be if if there were um, a direct challenge to Times v. Sullivan and it's an actual malice. So uh, I was about to interject there with a nerd alert because you are so deep in the weeds on this, Teresa, um, <laughs> which is why you can hear the passion for this area of law. And I want to get into an area that has been talked about a little bit here on TMT time, because some of what you're saying also touches what's going on in the news now vis-a-vis uh, -vis Facebook <clears throat> meta uh, and, and what can be said online and whether the section 230 protection, you know, inoculates everyone and what can be said online and what's incitement to violence, et cetera. And all of what you're talking about kind of plays into this, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely does. I mean, I think that Section 230 is sort of a, a very interesting political debate because on the one side, you have Democrats who say that online platforms aren't doing enough to regulate harmful conduct um, content on their, on their platforms. And then on the other side, you have you know, Republican members of Congress who are saying that, that really they're doing too much, that, they're, that they're, when they do moderate this, this content, um, they, they do it in a way that is, that is harmful to conservative speech that censors it. Right. Well, Trump um, so, got, got banned entirely. We had a podcast about that. So uh, ostensibly under this rubric. Yeah. And so the idea is, you know, Section 230 is supposed to give immunity to, um, to online platforms for either um, filtering out content or, or moderating it. And, um, 
there's been a, a whole lot of debate, a lot of testimony about how to change it. And I think the real stumbling block is, is no one really has come up with a new rubric for, for how to regulate um, this type of, of platform conduct. And one reason for that might be that, you know, there are constitutional dimensions to this as well. Um, one of the, the topics in New York Times versus Sullivan was, was book publishers, bookstores. Um, if you operate a, a corner bookstore, and I, I think there are at least three of them left in the country today, um, but back Wait, in 1964, what's that? What's a corner bookstore. What? <laughs> there were a lot more. Yeah. It's like huh? an Amazon, but at your house, but on the street. <laughs> Do I have to go there in person? <laughs> yeah. And there, there were lawsuits, um, where people tried to silence, um, speech by not only suing the author of the speech or the publisher, but they tried to sue bookstores. And the, you know, the, the, the answer was as long as the book, you know, the bookstore didn't have any role in the publication, didn't know what was going on in it, that they couldn't be held liable for it. And I think that there's probably a pretty strong argument that that first amendment protection would apply to, to platforms, even if section 230 didn't exist today. Um, but it, it sort of remains to be seen whether that's the case and, and whether they would need to go that far or, and whether the current you know, makeup of the Supreme Court would, would agree with that old rule. So as a free speech lawyer, where do you come down on this issue? Well, my view is that when we talk about Section 230 and, and online platforms, I think it's really um, easy to get caught up in the hard cases, um, the cases where, where speech is, is dangerous or, or false, et cetera. And my view is we don't give enough credit to how revolutionary these technologies have been to our society. And we were sort of losing sight of the benefit to democracy when people can speak to each other um, at an individual one-to-one -one level. Um, and I think it's really important not to lose sight of this. Like the Arab Spring was a direct result of Twitter being available in those countries for protesters to speak to each other, to talk about the problems that they were facing and what they wanted to do to demand better, to demand better lives. And if we, I just, I hate to see individuals becoming little mini censors. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's, there are, you have to ask yourself when, when speech is silenced, when people, when the methods of people coming together, talking, organized are, are taken away or limited by the law, who benefits from them? And I have to think that it's the people who, who have power more than the people who are powerless. Um, so I, I understand that it's a complex issue and it's, it's one that, that changes over time. And there are many dimensions to it, some of which are, you know, are, are make more sense than others. But I just think that from all things being equal, we need to make sure that we don't lose the benefits of these important society changing democratic tools um, at the expense of, of, of hard cases. All right. Well, listen, I hope our listeners heard the depth to which your knowledge goes on this defamation libel issue and the passion behind it. Um, before we sign off, Teresa, in addition to learning that your son is named after a Supreme Court justice, at least the middle name, uh, listeners know that I have dogs because they've heard them. 
<laughs> I see the dog run behind you in the background there today. It looks like a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, if I'm not That's mistaken. That's the one. Mm -hmm. And what is his name? He's, he's our pandemic puppy. Uh, his name is Wesley. He also answers to Mr. Dogglebones um, <laughs> and really almost anything else. Um, but it's it's been fun. I, I've, I've had a cat for the past 13 years and she's uh, pretty useless, but <laughs> but we love her anyway. Um, and, and adding a, a dog to the mix has been has been a lot of fun, too. Is, is Wesley a Princess Bride fan? Yes, is he is. From? What does, does Wesley have? As you wish. Yeah, as you wish. <laughs> does Wesley have a also a Supreme Court middle name? No, he doesn't. Um, although <laughs> when I when I told some friends about um my son Thomas Brennan being born, uh, one of my friends pointed out, well, you know, his first name is also after another Supreme Court justice. And I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I the, the, the Clarence Thomas reference. Uh, you know, that's valid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a very PC way of handling that free speech lawyer. Um, all right. Well, thanks you very much, Teresa, for joining the podcast. I hope our listeners found it to be very nice. And uh, hopefully get you back on here to get your thoughts on the cases because Supreme Court hears First Amendment defamation libel slander cases all the time. All right. Well, thanks so much. It was great being here.